and Junior Church is dismissed. So again, what we're planning on doing is right after I'm done preaching, we'll uh, either use the hymnals or we'll use the PowerPoint. But doesn't this remind you of our brothers and sisters around the world that cannot gather in a church? They are gathering out in the woods. They are gathering in basements. They are fleeing from the law. And I'm assuming they also did not, do not have computers and PowerPoints. So we are, that is more than able. You know, newspapers have a special kind of font that they reserve only for mega events. You know what that's called? It's called the second coming type. When there is a mega event, something that cannot just be promoted because it's such a a uh, huge event that has happened, instead of just using bigger, uh, greater uh, font and bold, they literally bring out what they call the second coming type. And what it basically is supposed to do is it screams at you, read me. In other words, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and the assassination of JFK. When Thomas Dewey was, defeats Harry Truman, and then that was false. 911 was put out by second coming font. Again, why would they call it second coming? This is why. Because there is no bigger event in human history than the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no, there is no event Nothing that we will cover in, in, in Revelation is of greater importance than the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, that is the climax. It's the climactic event of the great tribulation in human history, and that being the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns to the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to judge his enemies, to end Satan's deception, and to set up his kingdom on this earth that will last literally a thousand years. Literally a thousand years. There is nothing more dear to any saint that I know, God's people, than the second coming of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that is clear, more clearly stated than the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now again, as you think of, this, of the coming of Christ, I'm just going to use that word coming, not second coming. Remember, there was at least, by, by one uh, study, one man's study, at least 333 um, references to the first and second coming of Christ. More than 100 of those were fulfilled in his first coming, when he came as a babe, when he came in the incarnation. There's 200 plus that are still, as it were, outstanding that have to yet be fulfilled, and that they will be fulfilled. Those 200 plus references will be fulfilled when he comes back a second time. Again, there is no event in human history of greater importance than the return of the king. Right? When he comes back to take what is his own. Now, Peter says this, that scoffers, now the word scoffer means mockers or deceivers, will come in the last days walking according to their own loss. And this is what the scoffers will say. 
Where is the promise of his coming? I mean, he hasn't come in the last 2,000 years. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And so, again, they would be the type that says, you know, there's nothing supernatural, miraculous that God does in human history. In fact, there isn't even a God, because again, these are referred to the scoffers. And where is the promise of his, of his coming? Where's the promise? Don't you hear that still? Yeah, where's the promise? You say this is your God. You see all the wickedness in the world. You see all the evil in the world. Where's God? Where's his coming? If you say he's a righteous God, if he's a good God, why doesn't he come back and change things? Where's the promise of his coming? And yet, <laughs> 23 of 27 New Testament books, of the 27 books we have in the New Testament, 23 of them explicitly refer to the second coming of Christ of the earth. It's just all over the place. And as we go through Revelation, and especially as we get to Revelation chapter 19, we're going we're gonna to be bringing out those passages. But again, it's all over the New Testament that he's coming back. Not just his first coming, but his second. And again, when we say coming, we're talking about his visible, literal, physical, glorious return. Where it says that he steps down on the mountain of Olives. So we're not talking about a spiritual return. We are talking about a physical, literal, visible, glorious, the king is coming. The king is coming. Again, 333 distinct promises of his coming, but only 100 plus were ever fulfilled on his first coming. Much more to be fulfilled. Even Jesus himself referred to his second coming when he was on this earth 20 times. Over and over again, the coming of Christ is, is told as far as to his disciples, and because of that, that's the blessed hope. In other words, take hope, be encouraged, find peace in the fact that he's coming. Now again, I want to say something about the timing of his coming. I believe strongly that he comes a first time, well, he came the first time in the Incarnation, He's coming a second time, and yet this is not the second coming, what we call the rapture. And the reason it's not the second coming is because in the rapture, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, that we, we are caught up with him in the clouds. He never puts his feet on the Mount of Olives in the rapture. I believe that, and again, we'll see this as we study Revelation, I believe that happens before the tribulation. Before the seven years of tribulation, where Jesus judges this world. I believe his bride is not in this world at that time. <clears throat> By the way, if you're married, would you ever allow your bride to go through wrath? No, you're going to rescue your bride out of wrath. And I, I, I believe that's what happens the, before the great tribulation. The rapture happens. That's why I am a pre-tribulation uh, pre-tribulation view. But then we, we go through the seven years of tribulation, and at the end there's Armageddon, and Jesus Christ comes back, and that's when he comes back and actually uh, steps on the Mount of Olives, they split, and the king has returned. Okay, that's, that's what I mean by the second coming. Not the rapture, but when he actually sets foot down on, uh, on this earth. Again, the second coming really is not referred to, I mean, is, is actually not explained until Revelation chapter 19. 
Now you say, why are we doing a second coming message if, it, if he really doesn't return to the end of the book? Because look at what he says in verse 7, Behold, he is coming. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like without warning, after talking about who Christ is and his sacrifice, remember we talked about the benediction by the Trinity, the blessing by the Trinity, and now all of a sudden the Apostle John just like blurts out. It's like, Behold, he is coming. Like it's, it's, out of almost, it's almost out of place in one sense. I mean, no, sequentially, he doesn't come through this whole chronology until the end. What? It's just like, you know, like the greatest event in your life, can you think about it? Do you often think about it? And periodically you talk about it? For, for John, it's just like, he's coming. Behold, he's coming. Don't forget that. By the way, it makes sense too, because in verses 9 to the end, he actually lays out who Christ is in, in his, in his, uh, in his uh, glorified state. So again, it makes sense how he plays it out, but it's, but it's so it like startled without warning, following the doxology. He just like, behold, he is coming. I mean, <coughs> divine intervention is about to happen. Don't you want divine intervention? I want divine intervention. Isn't it going to be great when he comes back and all the, all the filth and ungodliness and rebellion of this world is going to be destroyed? Now again, there's, there's a sweetness to there, but there's also bitterness. Because with that judgment comes the loss of life. With that judgment comes damnation to many. But again, behold, he is coming. This is, I believe, the verse, the theme verse, the key verse of Revelation. Some would say it's in verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, the things which they are, and the things which will take place. Uh, past, present, future. Some would say verse 19. I, I actually think it's this verse right here. I think this is the key verse of Revelation. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now I think that's the, that is the key verse of this book. Well, let's look at five different aspects of the return of Christ. First of all, the necessity of Christ's return. It's necessary that he returns. He has to return. And let me give you seven. By the way, there are more than seven reasons. I'm just going to give you seven for time. We're going to see this again a number of times throughout the book. But it is absolutely necessary. It's a requirement that he comes. And that's why I believe John starts out by behold. In other words, see. But again, he uses a verb. He is coming. I.e. the coming one. He's the coming one. As Lenski wrote, quote, that's the great name in the Old Testament prophecy. He's the coming one. Over and over again. The people, especially of Israel, were promised he's coming. Now, the first time they came, he thought he was, Israel thought that Jesus was coming as the conquering king. No, he came the first time as the suffering servant. But he's the coming one. And just like he came the first time, he's coming back. Present tense. This is in the present tense. In other words, quote, the futuristic use of the present tense in which a future action, this is how this word coming is, is used, in where a future action is stated as already coming to pass. That's how it's stated. In other words, it is so sure he's putting it in the present, not in the future. 
He's coming. I mean, we got to get our, we got to, we got to build our lives around that truth. He's coming. We build our own little kingdoms. And, and he said, no, no, don't build your kingdom because that's not going to last. Build it on me because I'm coming back. This word coming <coughs> is used either directly or indirectly ten more times in Revelation in, re- in, 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 um, <coughs> in reference to the return of Christ. So this word, he is coming, is used over and over again. And it's always specifically about him. About the Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming. But I love that. I love it that it's in the present. It's so sure. It's not like any question mark. No, you find a scoffer and, you know, where is the promise of his coming? Well, first of all, I'll tell you where the promise is. is in here. And you know what? Since he fulfilled the first hundred plus references to his first coming, yeah, we know for sure that he's going to come back and fulfill the rest. And everything unfolds. Because all of history is pointing towards him. Everything is about him. Let me give you some reasons why he's coming back. First of all, Christ is coming to fulfill his promise that he will come back. I mean, he himself said it. Matthew 25, verse 31. This is what he told his disciples. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now, he's on this earth when he's speaking this. And he's saying, listen, when the Son of Man comes back in his glory. That's the second. He's telling his disciples. When he comes back, well, who's the Son of Man? He is. I'm coming back. That's what he's saying. I'm coming back. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. See, when he comes back in his glory, he will sit on the throne of his glory. He's got to come back because he promised it to his disciples. Not only did he promise it, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, remember when uh, he was taken up out of glory? And then it says this in verse, excuse me, verse 9. Uh, Acts 1 9. Now, when he had spoken these things, that's Christ, while they were they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up in heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. He promised it. The angels promised it. God the Father promised it. He's coming back. How about number two? Christ is coming to establish himself as the king. As Revelation chapter 19 verse 16 says, as king of kings and lord of lords. The king of all kings and the lord of all lords. He's going to come back. He's got to come back to establish himself as king. Right now, this little dirt ball is rebellion against God. But there comes a day when King Jesus comes back. Now again, we know there was an issue in Isaiah chapter 9, and we've looked at this before. We think of it as a Christmas passage. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Okay, child born, son given. Referring to the incarnation. And the government will be upon his shoulders. Well, that's never happened. So even Isaiah chapter 9. See, that's one of those key passages. Reference to him. He's coming. He's got to come back. Because the government's never been upon his shoulders. Oh, I don't want to say this. I mean, Colossians says he holds all things together. 
If Jesus ever, if Jesus ever stopped being almighty, do you, do you realize that you would just vanish? Gone. Universe, gone. He holds everything together. It's by his power everything is held together. That's, by the way, the, I believe, the way that he destroys in the end, the heaven and the earth. He just stops holding it together. By the way, do you know how God, do you know how he makes a breakfast like in John 20? This has nothing to do with the message, but you know how he makes a breakfast? Poof. Yep, breakfast made. Right? <laughs> what are we trying to say? He's all powerful. He's the king of kings. Christ, number three, is coming to defeat the Antichrist and his enemies. Jesus will crush the gathered horde at Armageddon, at Armageddon, who is under the authority of Antichrist, right? If you can find that, I won't turn there, but Revelation 19, verses 19 to 21. By the way, that is going to be one of the brief, that will be the briefest battle in history. You know, you think a nuclear attack is brief? Well, that's instantaneous too. The only thing is they had to plan it. When Christ comes back, it's done. It's done. And by the way, he's not, he's not, we're not, you know, don't think of it this way. That, that we come back with him, because it says we come back with him, like we need to fight for him and, you know, it's going to be, no, it's all done by him. <laughs> it's all done by him. Number four, Christ is coming to get, regather and restore faithful Israel. That's what Ezekiel 36 and 37 is talking about. Those bones, those bones, those Dry bones, those bones, those bones, those... Nah, yeah, whatever. Um, Israel needs to come back together. In the end, uh, Romans chapter 11 talks about that all Israel will be saved. There's going to be a double regathering of Israel. The first one is physical Israel. Getting them back into the land. That actually started when they became a, a nation again in 48. But there's coming a day when Jesus comes back and they will recognize Him whom they have pierced. They will recognize him as their savior. And I believe after all the destruction and carnage and all the persecution by the Jews, Romans 11 verse 26, and not just implies, it says that all Israel, everyone that's left that's a Jew will turn to Christ. Finally, the nation will be purely his. And again, you say, well, you mean, does that mean every Jew got, yeah, every Jew left standing turns to him. So he's got to come back to regather and restore faithful Israel. Number five, Christ is coming to judge the living. You go to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. This is what we call the judgments of the Gentiles. When Christ returns, all the Gentiles who survived the tribulation, because again, he returns at the end of the tribulation, <coughs> all the Gentiles who survived the tribulation will appear before him. He will determine if they can enter his kingdom. That's what the judgment's all about. See, there will be people left that are still living at the end of that great tribulation. And those who are, uh, are judged worthy, truly saved, will be able to go into the kingdom. Thousand-year reign. You know what's interesting about the thousand-year reign? Now think about this. Thousand years, Jesus Christ himself is on the throne of David. And at the end of the thousand-year reign... Because, see, these people that go into the kingdom at the first part of the thousand year, they, they will reestablish families. They will get married. I mean, that's what Isaiah talks about. They will have children. Children, by the way, that are they're born, born into during that thousand year reign need to get saved. At the end of the thousand years, we find one final rebellion. 
Isn't that interesting? The king is sitting on the throne. They see the marvelous works and they're still rebelling in the heart by those who were born during the thousand year reign. It just talks, I mean, it just shows, it just explicitly shows how rebellion is deep-seated in the heart of man. So judge the living, number six, Christ is coming to bind the devil. You go to Revelation chapter 20. It actually says that the angel binds, but again, it's because Christ is here and gives the angel the, the ability. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, <coughs> having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the, de- or the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. I mean, you, you like, don't have to wonder who this And then binds him for a thousand years and releases him at the end. And Christ finally is coming to resurrect the dead. And again, this would be the first resurrection. The first happens at a different time than the second. First is the righteous uh, resurrected to, uh, the righteous are resurrected. I believe the, the second, the last resurrection, the second resurrection is, is uh, at the end of the thousand years. The point is this, and I, I didn't get into much detail, only to say this. It is absolutely necessary that Jesus Christ come back to this earth. I mean, oh, I so want him to come back. Don't you get tired of unrighteousness and ungodly having the day? Don't you get tired of that? When you see the liars and the thieves and the immoral having the day, they're the ones that are in control. They're the ones that are calling the shots. Jesus comes back as the judge. In fact, John says that the Father is entrusted to the Son judgment. So he's got to come back. That's why, that's why John says, Behold, he is coming. And it's for sure. Not only is he coming out of necessity, but the grandeur, the glory, the magnificence of his coming. That's referred to in that second part of verse 7, with clouds. With clouds. As Christ was received, we just read this in Acts 1, by a cloud in his ascension, so he will come back in the clouds of heaven. He's going to, clouds reference or indicate not only that he's coming from above, but it symbolizes God's presence. Now you say, what do I mean? Remember back to the Old Testament? At the giving of the law of Sinai, God's presence was there, and this is what it says, a thick cloud upon the mountain. In other words, it was, it was in the cloud that God was represented. That, that's what he, that's, that's his, uh, that shows his presence. It was the cloud. He, the, he led the children of Israel, what, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by, not, see the cloud. See, that's, you, no man can look on God's glory and live. It's, but that's the, that's the representation. That's the presence of God. So when it says that he's coming back with clouds, by the way, you see this over and over again. When God communicated with Moses at the tent of meeting, which we call the tabernacle, it says this, quote, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. Oh, the presence of God. You see all the cloud. And then, actually, when the when the Israelites were in the tabernacle, then, then they left and the cloud descended. It says this, and the Lord would speak with Moses. See, the cloud descended, Moses would be there, not the rest, the Moses, and then 
God, the presence, would speak to Moses. So we saw that in the tabernacle. Let me give you one for the temple. In 1 Kings 8, verse 12, it says, The Lord said he would not dwell in the dark cloud. Okay? I mean, excuse me. No, 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 no. I, I said that wrong. It says, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. That's a bad place to put not. No, he would dwell in the dark. Again, it shows his presence. In other words, his presence was filled and it was, it was uh, symbolized by the cloud. God's glory. But just remember that one thing. A pillar, uh, a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So when it says that he's coming back, quote, with clouds, okay, it's talking about the glory of God that's showing his glory. In fact, Matthew 24, verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Now this is Matthew 24. This is the Olivet Discourse. Him preaching to his disciples. The, son of, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's Matthew 24, 30. So when I come back, I'm going to come back with the clouds. The Shekinah, the glory. I'm, I'm, the glory of God is, is with me because he is God himself. We won't turn there, but Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 also talk about him coming but in the clouds, but it's, it, it's all referred to in the heavens. It's not the situation on earth, but, but Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 is very important. But you see the grandeur of the second coming. The glory of the second coming with clouds. How about number three? A third aspect of it. The extent of the second coming. And every eye will see him. Now that's curious. Some would say, well, every eye can see him because we have TV now. Well, listen. I don't think everybody's going to be tuned in after a third of the earth is destroyed. And a third of the... I mean, everything is... Haywire, I think after the first part of the tribulation, electric, electricity goes out. I don't think it's TV that's going to allow this to happen. Like somehow we're going to wait till you know, the aborigines out in Australia get TV so that everybody can see them. No. But it does say that every eye will see him. By the way, this also speaks to the fact that it's not the rapture. This is not speaking of the rapture. In the rapture, it says we're caught up to the clouds. In the rapture, the earth, the worldly, the worldly ones, the ungodly ones, the unbelievers don't see Christ. He just snatches us out of this, this hell hole. That's really what it's all about. He's just snatching us. He's just snatching us out of the pit. Okay? By the way, you say, well, that's, you're using some strong terminology. Yeah! <laughs> this world that keeps going down, hating God, his bride is not going to go through the final when God gives the Son the right to judge his earth. And carnage and death are all around. And starvation is all around. But every eye will see him. This is the second coming. This is after the tribulation. Every eye will see him. But how can every eye see Jesus? You know, Tim LaHaye had an interesting thought. He said, if you go to Matthew 26, verse 64, 
2664. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read. This is Jesus speaking to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is before his crucifixion. And this is what he says to the high priest. It is, a, it is as you said, because he asked him a question. But just is the point. Nevertheless, I say to you, and he's talking about Caiaphas here. Jesus is speaking to Caiaphas. The I am the way, the truth. The truth teller is speaking to Caiaphas. He says this, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, yes, well, how did he see that? How, he's dead. Most likely died without Christ. Most likely died without Christ and therefore is in Hades right now. How does he see that? How does he... Because he's telling him specifically, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. How does he see that? I, I believe... You know, I've been thinking about this. I think even the dead will be able to give the glimpse from Hades of the glory and the coming of Jesus Christ. I think they're going to see, remember Luke 16? Apparently the implication is a rich man and Lazarus and saw each other over a wide gulf. It's, it's interesting. It's, I'm not going to stake my life on it, but it seems to say this, that every eye, every, every person that has ever been born will see the approach of the king. But let's see this. How else? Those who are living on this earth. Well, it could be this. That as he comes, that Jesus will reflect his glory or even the image of his coming around the entire earth. The, the radiance, like Second Thessalonians says, chapter 2, the brightness of his coming. The brightness of his coming. It may be when he comes to this earth, it's just... And they see that brightness. Or... It could be that his coming may be gradual, transpired over, let's say, even a day's time frame. That's how John Wolvert of Dallas Theological thinks. Well, when he was alive, he thought this. Well, now he knows. Um, that, that the coming of Christ is not like instantaneous. Now, the rapture is instantaneous, but how about if the second coming was a majestic event, which it is? It's the king coming. And how about if we think of it this way? Imagine Christ's victory train marching slowly and majestically from heaven to earth. And through that entire 24-hour or whatever time frame, as the, the earth rotates, that they see the glory. And even when he came, it was dark, but now 15 hours later, they see the glory. And he descends slowly. Why? Because, let's face it, this is the pinnacle event in human history. Just take a king like in England. They didn't just like show up on the throne. They had this all majestic, you know, and their entourage, and it took probably days. I meant to look it up. I didn't. I, probably by next week I will. But, you know, think about the king of kings. And coming. Coming. By the way, at that time, coming to judge the earth. Every eye will see him. Look at, look at, this, look at who's going to see him. Even they who pierced him, that's the Jews. John chapter 19 says the Jews asked Pilate that the, threes, the, the, the three that were hanging on the cross, their legs might be broken because it was the day of preparation before the Sabbath. But verse 37 said this, and again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. And that's talking about the Jew. So in this passage right here, even they who pierced him, that's talking about the nation of Israel. 
Peter affirmed the Jews' guilt in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the day of Pentecost. Remember when Peter, when he stood up and he was... And he said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. I mean, he's attested. You should have known by, you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, it was part of the Father's plan. God had it all planned out. <coughs> the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was all planned out by the Father. The sacrifice of Christ is not plan B. I heard that before. In, in college, I even heard the implication like, he came to be the king to the Jewish people, they rejected him, therefore he went to the cross. No, he came the first time to be the sacrificial lamb. He came the first time to be the acceptable sacrifice that your sins were placed on him, and if you receive him, you can be forgiven. But listen to what Peter says to the men of Israel after talking about, you know, he was attested, God's approval. To the Jews, he says this, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. I mean, basically, Peter pegs the Jewish nation right to the wall. You should have known you had the scriptures. You killed them. By the way, that's why there was so much animosity towards the Jew. That's why uh, Jews were hunted down and killed because they said, see, you were, you were Jesus' hater. You were the one. It was based off this passage, at least one of these passages. Zechariah chapter 12, way back in the Old Testament, says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, then they will look on me who they pierce. Talking about the Jew. So when Jesus Christ comes back in all his glory, and every eye will see him, you know what the every eye, the first every eye will see him? The Jews. That's why when he finally steps down, there is a, there is a, uh, 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 a Jewish revival that turns right to Christ. Every Jew gets saved. And then finally... But look at the last part of that verse. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Now, the tribes, that's not Jewish. That's Gentile. I believe you go back to Matthew 24, verse 30. It says this, The Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And that word mourn is the word kapto. It literally means to cut. And it refers back to the pagan the way pagans, when they were on great mourning, they would cut themselves. Think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. They would cut themselves. That would show great mourning. I believe, whereas the first part who pierced him, when they see him, there's revival. There's repentance. The nation comes to their Lord. The nation of Israel repents and, and acknowledges Christ as the King of Kings. They get saved. The second part of this verse, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, I believe that's a mourning of disgust. They're, they're, they're angry. They're still against him. That's his grief and despair. They're cutting themselves, as it were, because they hate him. Whereas the Jews will mourn out of true repentance. The, this last part is, I think it's the sinful world being judged by Christ. They will mourn. When you see your family slaughtered, you will mourn. Or they will mourn. But again, 
Let me give you a moment of hope. And if you go back to Revelation 7, there's a glimpse in Revelation 7 that brings us to heaven as a future thought. And and in verse 7, verse 9, it says, In a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes, verse 10, and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And verse 13, and the question is asked, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And I said to him, Sir, you know, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is the hope. Even though, see, it's not all Gentiles mourn. There are, there are Gentiles that even come through that great tribulation who turn to the King. I love that. It's not just about Israel. God is a saving God. God is continually seeking to work in people's lives. And there are people around the throne who has robes of righteousness because they've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Both Jew and Gentile. That's hope. That is hope. That's comfort. All of the tribes and nations and peoples and tongues. So again, we see the glory. We see the grandeur. We see the extent. How about number four? And now we see the reaction by John to the second coming. Even so, amen. So be it. (coughs) So be it. It is so, amen. That's what it literally means. The even so means yes, yes, yes. By the way, the word amen means truth, but yes. You ever get excited about truth? Yes. He's coming, yes. I know, if you're younger, you're probably saying this, well, I hope he doesn't come back until after I get... I know, I was there one time. I love my wife, but once you start realizing how... I tell you what, by the time the worst goes through the, the great tribulation, everybody's going to be... Anybody that's saved, I, even so, come Lord Jesus. I think it's going to be like that even before the rapture. It's going to keep getting worse, even so, come Lord Jesus. So that's John, he just like, you know, even so. And then finally, the certitude of the second coming. The certitude. Now, now we come to a problem. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Who is the Lord there? Christ or God the Father? Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty? Well, Jesus and the Father are both referred to the Alpha and the Omega in other parts of Scripture. They're both referred to the beginning and the end. Who is and was and is to come is in verse 4. The Father was very clearly referred to, Almighty. I don't know. John Wolverd and hit in uh, uh, a man named Hitchcock who took over for Wolverd say this is a reference to Christ. Uh, John MacArthur and uh, Robert Thomas both say no, this is a reference, and, and this is how they put it. Ever so slightly, in other words, if you put all the, uh, you know, put the evidence of the, it being this Jesus and the evidence of the Father, he said ever so slightly I would say it's the Father, but he said that's, Ever so slightly. I don't know. But I will say this for sure. This is categorically true. This is speaking of the Godhead. This is speaking of God. God the Father, God the Son. Maybe it's speaking of the Godhead. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God is saying this will happen. That's the certainty. So let's just break out. Without trying to identify 
identify who. Let's just say, what is he saying? Okay. First of all, he says, Christ's return is guaranteed because of God's eternality. In other words, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, Omega the last. In other words, all knowledge is conveyed through those letters of the alphabet. All, everything, in other words, I'm the first and the last. I am eternal. I am omniscient. Okay? He's just saying, because I know all, and really all knowledge comes from me, I can guarantee this will happen. God is declaring that he has all knowledge and therefore knows the certainty of Christ's return. Number two. Christ's return is guaranteed because of God's transcendence, who is and was and is to come. It's a little bit different than the eternality, but the idea is, again, God's eternal presence is not confined by time or space or anything that's contained within them. He's beyond time and space. There is, again, no possible condition of which he is unaware, therefore, and therefore he can say this, with certainty... My son is coming back. And then finally, the third one, Christ's return is guaranteed because of God's omnipotence, his all, his all power. That's, that's the word almighty, the almighty. You see that, by the way, ten different times in the New Testament. Nine times, I, I want you to get this, nine times in the book of Revelation, God is referred to as the almighty. And the word almighty literally means this, all everything to hold. Put them together. He holds everything in his hands and he has his hands into everything in the sense of controlling everything. He's the Almighty One. He's the one that holds all. He's the one who has authority over all. It's God's authority. He's the ruler. And he says there is absolute certainty that my son will come back and claim what is his. I trust that these truths would be, as I would say this, I hope you believe what you believe. I hope these bring great comfort, great encouragement, great peace in times of trouble that we seem to see all around us. He's the all-powerful one. Nothing can prevent his return. He is coming back. Amen? Jesus came the first time in humiliation. He will, he will return in exaltation. He came the first time to be killed. He will return to destroy his enemies. He came the first time to serve. He will return to be served. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He will return as the conquering king. The challenge of the book of Revelation makes to every person is this. Be ready. Be ready. John Phillips writes in his commentary, quote, one of the most stirring pages in English history tells of the conquests and crusades of Richard I, which we know as the Lionhearted. While Richard was away trouncing Saladin, his kingdom fell on bad times. His sly and graceless brother John usurped all prerogatives of the king and misruled the realm. The people of England suffered, longing for the return of the king and praying that it might soon be. Then one day Richard came. He landed in England and marched straight for his throne. Around that glittering coming came tales that are told, woven into the legends of England. By the way, one of those tales is Robin Hood. John's castle tumbled like nine pins. 
King Richard laid claim to his throne, and none stand in his path. The people shouted their delight. They rang peal after peal on the bells. The lion was back. Long live the king. And that's exactly how it's going to be with the King King Jesus.